For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, I'm, it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Brooke Saporin, who is uh, the Mercia Eliada Professor of Chinese Religion, Philosophy, and Comparative Thought at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Um, Brooke is, in my opinion, the foremost uh, scholar of Chinese Buddhism in the West. I'm not qualified to speak about in East Asia. Uh, amongst his uh, many books are, um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Emptiness and Omnipresence, an Essential Introduction to Tiantai Buddhism, Being in Ambiguity, Philosophical Experiments, with Chantai Buddhism, and Beyond Oneness and Difference, Li and Coherence in Chinese Buddhist Thought and Its Antecedents. He also has a book on Zhuangzi. Um, he's spoken here at Ancient Dragon a number of times, but not since we have become uh, fully Zoomed and online. Uh, and uh, Brooke is uh, a wonderful, brilliant speaker about uh, all things Buddhist. So, uh, Brooke, thank you very much for coming again to our Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, uh, take it away. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here in virtual form, at least, uh, under these strange circumstances. Um, the topic I was going to talk about today, I think we had a title that was something like Identical to Buddha, Identical to Dung Beetle. And uh, this is a reference to a specific Tiantai Buddhist, Chinese Tiantai Buddhist uh, handling um, of what is a broader, I think, a broader uh, Mahayana Buddhist issue. And, and that issue is uh, sometimes called original enlightenment or fundamental awareness. Um, and so I, to, to sort of um, uh, give, give a little background uh, to the significance of this doctrine, um, and which was very controversial, but um, became the mainstream Chinese Tiantai view. Um, I thought the, I will try to start by sort of uh, uh, outlining um, the general problem of, of original enlightenment in the Mahayana. The first question that I think comes up um, is why there is this doctrine at all? Um, if you look at if you look at this in the context of early Buddhism, um, it sort of seems not only unnecessary, or might seem sort of unnecessary, even um, to raise un, a lot of unnecessary problems, and even to sort of tilt 
Buddhism uh, uncomfortably close to some of the things it had defined itself precisely as opposing, namely the idea of some kind of um, original or foundational or absolute um, metaphysical substratum or uh, sort of, you know, positive ultimate reality type thing, like, like sort of the Atman or Brahman idea of the Upanishads. So the first thing I think we have to get clear on here to make sense of uh, the other things I'll be talking about is what that problem, why this doctrine was felt to be necessary. And then I'll try to talk about a couple of different ways of solving what I see as sort of the basic problem that it's meant to address. So as um, some of you are very uh, familiar with, um, you know, early Buddhism starts with this idea of impermanence and suffering and non-self. Um, and uh, in the Four Noble Truths, we, we have uh, the Third Noble Truth, which also posits something else called nirvana, 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 um, as the end of suffering, right? Um, and the end of suffering is defined in early Buddhist, including Pali text, Theravada tradition, but also the foundational texts that come into East Asia, um, purely negatively. So you have a situation where um, all things that arise and perish, all impermanent dharmas, um, are intrinsically uh, related to suffering. Um, and a very radical view that really the only foundational uh, solution to this problem of suffering is going to involve a, a state that, that does not involve impermanence and does not involve uh, what is even maybe even more um, profoundly at the root of impermanence, the idea of conditionality itself being caused, being caused by other things, relying on other things, not being self created, not being in control of itself. That is the cause of suffering. It's also the cause of impermanence. So I'll use that term conditionality, meaning something that arises from causes and conditions. We can get into a lot of technical details I won't bother with now about um, specific ideas about causality, but the, the heart of that matter is that conditional things are necessarily suffering, non-self, and impermanent. And so the end of suffering is going to require something that isn't that way, and that would be nirvana, and that is specifically and only really described as what would be unconditional, what has no conditions, which does not require anything to make it so. And that's a way, it's a very radical solution. It's also a very elegant solution in a way. If you, We won't go into it now, but I mean, if you work through the, uh, both the existential and the philosophical dimensions of this idea, um, it actually uh, goes quite a long way. But there is a little bit of a problem that arises here, a little bit of a, a brain teaser, which is how it is that something which is supposed to be, which must be unconditional, i.e. nirvana, which is the key to liberation, can arise at a certain time or place for certain people, arhats, right, or the Buddha, or some people and not others, or some entities and not others, because the very idea of the unconditional means something that doesn't require any conditions, and that should seem to imply or would seem to imply uh, that um, it could not be the result of a process. Buddhism was a little different 
uh, from uh, other religious and metaphysical schools and that it didn't want to put the, the unconditional at the beginning, right? It didn't want to say everything arises from some unconditioned thing. It didn't want to say uh, God created the world or things arose from Brahman or things like that, but it still had need for the unconditioned in this much constricted sense as the locus, as it were, of liberation, just because of the way it defines suffering. So that produced a little bit of a paradox, and um, early Buddhism, I would say, in the main, um, addresses this simply by saying, um, you, you may know the parable of the arrow or, or the parable of the raft, um, uh, things like that, to say, well, it's true, it's, you can't really make sense of what nirvana is or how it relates to um, conditioned reality, um, when in the state of conditioned reality, and you don't need to know, more importantly. It's, it's not it's a, a matter of uh, theoretical speculation. We, we can know enough to practice and to achieve it, and then these problems will, in one way or another, fall away. Um, so that's the background to how or why, I would say, uh, Mahayana Buddhism then feels... Um, a need to sort of address this problem in, in more theoretically robust ways. And this is what leads to this idea that, okay, in some sense, yet to be determined, this is where it will get interesting, in some sense, we are going to have to say that the unconditioned is really unconditioned, which is to say, has to always exist everywhere and in every state um, and uh, without being constricted to a particular point in time or a particular being's condition, right? That's the very definition of the unconditional. And now we have a setting for a whole different kind of set of problems. If that's the case, why do we need to practice? Right? I'm sure you guys are familiar with this in the Soto context, uh, in the case of Dogen, who, who is a, a big part of this story on, on the uh, far end of this. So maybe at the end, we'll have time to address that. Um, one of the ways, so what, what that would mean then is that you start to get things in Mahayana sutras and from Mahayana writers who will say, mm, in, in, a, in some sense, all beings are already enlightened. All beings are already identical to the Buddha, have attained uh, or, or have always existed in the state that the Buddha has attained. And that presents obviously big problems. Why practice, I just mentioned, but also in what sense? Um, obviously, um, we're deluded and we're suffering and the Buddha is supposed not to be those things. So what does it even mean to say that we are already enlightened? Um, one of the ways this is approached, and I'll start with this one, although I don't necessarily think it's the earliest version, because it is, I think, the most straightforward one, um, easiest to grasp. Um, it's a, an idea that we find um, in some sort of late Mahayana sutras, and it becomes very influential in early Chan, which is to say Zen in China. And this is the idea of uh, sort of unconditioned awareness, simply awareness per se, the, the, the feature of the mind that is not uh, specifically karmically driven thoughts and uh, specific perceptions, but sort of, as it were, the field in which these occur, which 
is compared to things like space, right? Or sort of clarity or pure light. You may have a similar idea, I think, in Tibetan traditions with this idea of Rigpa, um, where, um, uh, but very prominent in Chan, you may know uh, the Platform Sutra of the Sixth Patriarch, Huenang, um, sometimes will compare the mind, the original mind or the original nature, which would be the unconditioned nature, the Buddha nature, to empty space and to all our thoughts and emotions as things that come and go in that space. Um, but the space itself is not tarnished by them, is not polluted by them, right? Is not soiled by dirty things or, or purified by pure things. Um, it cannot either really exist or not exist, which is helpful for some of these trickier points of its relation to the conditioned, right? Space per se. Um, And so this is also connected to um, an interpretive move more pertinent to this topic today, which is to say, well, really the word Buddha, we we translate that as awake, but um, I think both in Sanskrit, but certainly in Chinese, um, the word is jie, uh, uh, which can also just mean aware, aware. Okay, just to be simply aware of things. So this dimension, you might say, of the minds of ordinary beings, when we say, let's say, you know, just this mind is the Buddha, um, there's almost a, I don't say this disparagingly, I just would say there's a bit of a pun involved there, which is to say, Buddha has never meant that guy Shakyamuni in India. Buddha means awakeness, which is to say awareness, and once you've made that move, you have a relatively um, straightforward way of saying, okay, I can sort of understand how deluded sentient beings are already identical to Buddha in the following sense. Even when we're having deluded thoughts and suffering, um, we are still aware. And that awareness is is then construed through various moves as unwavering and un, un uh unstained by these things. We have the comparison of the sun behind the clouds, sometimes in early Chan text, things like that, um, which is there, and or the light that shows all the different colors, or the mirror, right? Very familiar Zen uh, trope, the mirror, which has no color of its own, but shows all these colors, and yet is unchanging, um, has always been there. We know that also the mirror verses at the beginning of the Platform Sutra, you might um, further pursue this, right, where, again, it is neither existent nor non-existent, really, and that really is required to make it properly unconditioned. If you were really, and this is the way they are able to still critique things like the, the maybe the, the Brahmanical or the Hindu view, um, we're not talking about, like, an ultimate being, because being is still relative to non-being, and it, if it's even imaginable, conceivable to non-exist under any possible conditions, that wouldn't really be the unconditioned. So we, we get a critique of both being and non-being. And, and in this line of thought, they will say, and that's exactly what we find when we look at awareness. Even in an ordinary person, it's always already going on. And, um, uh, but you can't really pinpoint it as a specific entity, right? You can't really say it exists. You can't really say it doesn't exist. 
Um, and yet it is sort of the ground, the ever-present, ever-active ground of every other experience. So in that sense, all the Buddha is, is someone who has realized what we've already been doing all along, right? Um, and which is to say being aware, even when we're suffering. Um, and um, it now can make some sense to say uh, the unconditioned is nirvana, is Buddhahood, and we've all been enlightened all along without knowing it. There's the catch, though, right? That last, those last three words, without knowing it, right? Because, um, so I, I just put that, for, let's call that model one here. And as I say, it's, it's elegant in a certain way, right? It does address the problem and it provides a, a quite intuitive way to make those sort of claims. We will find this continuing to be influenced, I would say, especially in China, in the sort of Rinzai uh, side of Chan or Zen. Um, but without knowing it, then gives us another problem, right? Because what differentiates a Buddha from ordinary beings, Buddha in the ordinary sense, in the usual sense, not this new sense of just awareness per se, um, is that he did realize this. He does know it, right? And so the difference between sentient beings, deluded sentient beings and Buddhas is sort of just moved up a level. It's shifted to another, another place, right? And you start to get some of the same maybe mystifications, you might say, or, or, or sort of bracketings of this problem. Uh, you'll see this in sort of sudden enlightenment doctrines, right? There's going to be you will realize nothing has really changed. We can't really explain to you what that will mean or will look like until it happens. Uh, but uh, there's a huge difference, nevertheless. It's just that the difference is now regarded as inessential, uh, as something that will be sort of self-canceled once it occurs, right? You'll see that the difference was no difference. There's a lot of, this is very intricate part of Buddhist doctrinal history in China. A um, lot of ways of approaching that. Um, a critique of that view um, comes uh, in the Tantai school, which is sort of the main focus today. I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant of time, so I'll try to, I'll try to keep this uh, not too complicated, but the, uh, um, uh, which is to say, hmm, you really change the uh, terms of the, of the discussion when you make that move. Um, because uh, when you, you're supposed to be saying that sentient beings are identical to, to the Buddha, and that is required for the unconditionality, which is alone uh, salvific or liberating, um, for that to be established. But the definition of a sentient being is someone then who has this pure awareness, but doesn't know it, right? And that means when you say, a sentient being is identical to a Buddha, you should mean someone who has the awareness but doesn't know it is identical to someone who has the awareness and does know it. Not simply that they have the awareness, right? That's the, the necessary but not sufficient condition of being a Buddha. So, you know, uh, A plus B equals a Buddha, but A without B is simply what it is to be a sentient being. So to do that, you introduce a weird sort of dualism is the worry, right? Between the sort of essential level of the, the fundamental mind and this more superficial level of the, the self-described or self-comprehended uh, state of the sentient being. In the Tantai school, they're not comfortable with this. Um, and also they have a completely different way into solving our original problem. 
So that's what I want to turn to now. Tiantai school is earlier than the Chan school, and you might say that at first glance, it looks to be a lot more conservative on this issue, um, which is to say, uh, it, of course, uh, like all these Mahayana schools, will say, right, in some way, we have to already be identical to Buddha. But in what way? Not that way, the one I just described, model, model one. But in a way that always preserves both the sameness and the difference. And I, I won't go into the sort of more uh, elaborate philosophical reasons for this. Um, they have to do, if you're interested with the three truths, um, this key Tiantai idea, which is very particular about keeping sameness and difference perfectly balanced, emptiness and provisional positing, ultimate truth and conventional truth, without introducing a hierarchy between them. Um, so what the founder of Tiantai did is he said, well, it would be as wrong to say we are just the same as the Buddha, but not different as to say we are simply different from the Buddha and not the same. We have to really rethink our very categories of sameness and difference. That's, that's the, what they take from Madhyamaka emptiness theory into this three truths idea. And so to do that, they introduce something that sounds like maybe a, a pretty, uh, uh, comfortable with a certain certain kind of gradualism. They they have an idea. Uh, I won't introduce many technical Tiantai ideas today, but the, here's one. They call this the six identities. This comes from the founder of the school, Tiantai Jiri, or uh, also known as Tendai in Japan. Uh, so he says there's six ways, different ways in which we are identical to the Buddha. And they sort of work progressively. And all of them balance the two sides, identical but different, and different in various ways. So first level, we're identical in principle, or in li, literally. Okay, so that means whether you know it or not, at the level of uh, fundamental, um, inseparable, indivisible, dependent, co-arising, uh, emptiness, um, uh, interdependence, and so on. Um, there is no uh, special ontological mark of a Buddha that separates him off from other beings. Um, and indeed, everything that's going on there cannot be uh, located in one locus at the expense of another, conceptually or really. So th- that idea, the first one, is is sort of close structurally to the model model one, right? Which is to say, okay, all beings are identical to the Buddha in principle. Now what? Next, the next one, uh, identical in name. That means conceptually, which is to say somebody tells you like in a sutra or just hearing a lecture or something, by the way, you're, because uh, the unconditional can't arise at any time, you are identical to a Buddha. Now you have a little bit of knowledge. You have moved. There's still a different kind of a difference there, Right. But you're still identical, but now you're identical in a a new way. Third one is practice and contemplation identity. And that's when you practice and uh, gradually, uh, according to, you know, the methods and uh, ideas uh, brought to bear through that that, uh, consideration, uh, begin to have some uh, real-time, fleeting real-time experiences of that. And the next one, these are pretty pretty commonsensical in a way. And the next one is identity. Identity doesn't change, 
but identity in different forms. Okay, so the next the, the next one is simulacrum identity. I guess I translate so, which is to say, you, you and these correspond to the traditional Mahayana bodhisattva path. So stages in the bodhisattva path. You know, you start to have compassion. You start to uh, uh, begin to behave like a traditional notion of a Buddha would, or to perceive and experience the way a Buddha would, or at least seem to, <laughs> okay? Again, too many details in, in which specific stages of Bodhisattva. And the next one is partial realization, and the final one is ultimate realization. And again, so uh, uh, I, partial realization of identity with the Buddha, with Buddhahood, um, and uh, ultimate realization of that okay so here we've worked in both sides of that which is to say both the you are but you don't know it right so you the second level where we where the first model introduces kind of um a second dualism or a second distinction but distinction's okay in the tentai case because again we can do this in q a if you want but the the short version of this is to say for them the unconditional includes and indeed manifests through both the sameness, which you'd expect of an unconditional, and the difference. So they don't have that problem. You know, in Tiantai, they'll say, if you're going to introduce the distinction between enlightenment and delusion at all, there's no reason not to introduce a million other distinctions. You know, you're not getting out of dualism by doing that, right? If you say, when you're enlightened, you realize there's no dualism, and when you're not, you don't, you're already stuck in dualism. So we got to go, the only way out is to go through and we go through all our dualisms. And so they are very comfortable using a system like that. However, this system, and this is the main topic, and this is where the dung beetle and all that comes in, um, actually has really radical consequences. Um, uh, And part of of the way to get to that is to talk about, again, uh, what the word Buddha means. So, I said before that one of the key factors in the first model is to say, well, Buddha, Buddhahood really doesn't mean, don't take, one, one of the things Chan and Zen do in their early period is to look at the, all, the, all the miraculous and spectacular things you find in Mahayana Sutras and interpret them all very metaphorically as referring to aspects of the mind, indeed sort of uh, intrinsic aspects of this original awareness. So the real Buddha, technically speaking, they'll say only the Dharmakaya is the real Buddha sometimes, you know. The, these other things, the Nirmanakaya, the transformation body, or the, uh, the reward body, those are just convenient uh, upayas or skillful means um, to describe things about that, that one original true Buddha, which is your mind, which is your original, the nature of your own mind. Um, but in Tiantai, the notion of the Buddha, Buddhahood is not synonymous with the, the unconditioned per se. The unconditioned per se is the three truths, is the middle way. Um, and Buddhahood is, I'm going to backtrack slightly, is identical to that, but it's the realize, it, it includes the idea of the realization of that. This comes from the Nirvana Sutra. So... Um, it's a particular way of um, experiencing uh, this universal fact. It is not the universal fact itself, Buddhahood, okay? 
They will discuss the universal fact. But so that means to say you're identical to a Buddha doesn't mean you're identical to the universal fact, which everyone admits. It means you're identical to this particular way of experiencing the universal fact. And that's actually a much bolder and more difficult claim, right? Because as I said, it's, we can sort of understand how you have to be identical to the universal fact in some sense. But this claim is to say, no, no, no. Even right now, as you are as a deluded being, you are identical to that experience that happened under the Bodhi tree, the realization of uh, the quote unquote ultimate reality or the, the nirvanic nature of all beings. You're not just identical to that nirvanic nature. You're identical to the realization of that, uh, that's uh, nirvanic nature of all beings. How is that possible? That seems even more crazy in a way, right? And to get uh, toward an answer to that and one step closer to our dung beetle, uh, we have to go through uh, a, a brief excursus on, on the Lotus Sutra, which is a key text for the, um, for the Tantai school. So the Lotus Sutra introduces an idea of the identity between two seemingly completely different or even mutually exclusive things or states, even states of mind or even states of practice or states of realization in a very kind of uh, local way when it's talking about the relation between um, Hinayana disciples, as they would say, Shravakas, people who are practicing the Buddhist path only to attain nirvana, and this other class of beings in which we, we just invoked uh, the bodhisattvas. The bodhisattvas are the key to this whole problem. Uh, the bodhisattvas, as you know, are, are we have to keep in mind that definition. A bodhisattva is a person who could very quickly leave samsara, attain nirvana, attain the end of suffering, but out of compassion and solidarity uh, for sentient beings, uh, chooses to be reborn and chooses to be reborn maybe for unbelievably long periods of time. And in so doing, what does he do while he stays voluntarily in the world? He transforms, gets born again and again and again into different shapes and forms and different kinds of creatures and gods and animals and all sorts of things. And he does this um, to engage with other sentient beings, to communicate with them for the purpose of liberating them, of bringing them along to uh, liberation. It's necessary to participate with all these various forms of beings and to be able to transform into all of them. And indeed, what's going to happen in the Lotus Sutra is that not only is that a means to the end of Buddhahood, which was just the end of samsara, of rebirth, but that very process comes to be looked at as intrinsic to what Buddhahood is. So Buddhahood is being defined a little bit differently in this corner of the Mahayana. So two things happen in the Lotus Sutra that are important for us. One is the claim is made, well, since being a bodhisattva means to transform into beings, to interact with beings, to inspire beings, to liberate beings, even being a non-bodhisattva, that is to say a shravika, someone who doesn't care about being a bodhisattva, doesn't think he's a bodhisattva, could well be a bodhisattva, and he would be doing the bodhisattva work without even realizing it. 
And this is expressed in the Lotus Sutra kind of mythologically and, and with baby steps sort of. When it is revealed, the Buddha says, all of my disciples are bodhisattvas. Every Buddhist is a bodhisattva, which is to say, even you, or everyone I teach even, is a bodhisattva. So that means when you hear me say that sentence, you are a bodhisattva. Now, how can that be? You don't know you're a bodhisattva. And that's similar to our problem about being identical to a Buddha, right? Because it was claimed you're a Buddha, but you don't know it. Well, that seemed really weird, and we had these various approaches just now. But if you say you can be a bodhisattva without knowing it, and the Buddha makes specific, you know, we'll say in the sutra things like, oh, you, Shariputra, you made a vow to be a bodhisattva long ago, which you've now forgotten. And one way to interpret that is to say, well, your forgetting of it was also part of your bodhisattva practice. You vowed to forget it. Why would you do that? How could you be identical that way? Because of compassion. Because of, of the, the effectiveness of upayas, of skillful means of teachings, are infinite. As we know from the bodhisattva vows, right? Because sentient beings are infinite. Because sufferings are infinite. Inexhaustible. And that means every possible way that one might be committed to transform every possible situation must be part of the bodhisattva practice. And there will be cases where I must forget I'm a bodhisattva, believe I am a, sh- a shravaka, a, a non, someone who doesn't believe in bodhisattvahood, and that's the only way I'm going to connect with certain types of sentient beings and liberate them from some or another of their attachments or, or delusions. So it, because of what a bodhisattva is, and it involves transformation and interaction, it suddenly becomes intelligible for someone to be a bodhisattva while appearing not to, and even to be a bodhisattva while appearing not to, to themselves temporarily, right? The next step in the Lotus Sutra is to push that for the relation between a bodhisattva and a Buddha, where the, in chapter 16, if you're interested, the, the Buddha says, I've actually been a Buddha all, all this long time when you thought I was a bodhisattva. And what that means in the context of the sutra is, well, what I, even what maybe I at the time considered just my bodhisattva practice was itself what Buddhahood is. Buddhahood is seeing that bodhisattvahood is always going on and that there is nothing beyond that that constitutes the end of suffering. There is, in effect, no end of samsara. Samsara is the retaking up of, uh, of, of samsara, or liberation is the retaking up of samsara in bodhisattvahood, now seen as inexhaustible on both ends, right? You don't become a Buddha and stop being a bodhisattva, and you didn't, even before you knew you were a bodhisattva, you were already doing that bodhisattva work, all right? Sometimes even precisely by not knowing it. So we have this identical to relation on both sides of that. Sentient beings, the, it, the Tiantai will push it a little further than the sutra is explicit about, but you know, uh, sentient, all sentient beings might be bodhisattvas. Buddhahood really is just seeing that bodhisattvahood. It's, it's a funny little loopy paradox, right? A bodhisattva is a, is a Buddha who thinks there is Buddhahood outside bodhisattvahood. And a Buddha is a bodhisattva who knows that bodhisattvahood is Buddhahood, <laughs> like that. Um, but you see, I hope that this changes the meaning both of Buddhahood and of uh, identical with. 
Okay, you, the, the form of identical with that pertains here, and in all those six identities I just outlined, um, is uh, this form, right? And it's, it's, of course, threaded through Madhyamaka, emptiness theory, and things like that as well, uh, for some of the, the rigor uh, uh, on the theoretical side. But that's the basic idea, and that is to say, a Buddha now is someone who sees, first of all, sees his own past lives as his own past bodhisattva practice, and then further sees his own past lives as his Buddhahood, because that is just bodhisattva practice eternally, and then further sees all sentient beings' past lives. You remember when the Buddha awakened, he saw two, he saw two things. One, his own past lives and that of all other sentient beings. And two, dependent co-arising the Four Noble Truths, Nirvana, and so on, right? Well, this picture of what a Buddha is, is someone who sees all beings as bodhisattvas and therefore who sees all beings as Buddhas. Identical, it's, it's noteworthy that a bodhisattva can transform into the form of a Buddha. This also happens in the Lotus Sutra, right? So um, that's what we're supposed to be identical with, that experience of seeing all sentient beings as eternal bodhisattvas i.e. eternal Buddhas, i.e. beings who are eternally engaged in transforming limitlessly in compassion and solidarity with all other life, um, mutually transforming one another, mutually liberating one another, even in the form of our delusions at times. So when Tiantai says there are six levels of being identical with that, what they mean is, in your ordinary experience, when you have the thought of that, and then we or you know of that, even when you know of it as something you are not, in the specific form of what is opposed to you or what you're aspiring to, that mental function, not the underlying awareness mental function, but the actual making of divisions, which posits, if you like, a particular image of something, but looks at it as external, that already is the enactment of a form of the bodhisattva presentation of that very content in that very moment of your delusion. So when I'm aware that I am not a Buddha, that Buddhahood is distant from me, that is a way in which I'm experiencing Buddhahood in this sense of Buddhahood, right? I'm aware that at another time and place there's a Buddha. That awareness of my not being a Buddha is going on here and is a transformation, which when I think of the Buddha, I am not, I'm thinking of someone who sees my moment of not recognizing him as his own Bodhisattva practice, right? Because that's what a Buddha is. Someone who sees all sentient beings and all their delusions as Bodhisattva, eternal Bodhisattva practice. Okay, And so whenever I define myself, when I have a self-view, when I have my most fundamental delusions of dividing myself off from other things, I'm also thereby experiencing those other things I'm rejecting, those other things I'm defining myself as not connected to. But that actually is my connection to them and their reverse manifestation in me at that moment. And so... The six identities now read in the following way. It means when I'm aware of the Buddha who I am not in practice, that is the manifestation in name and as the beginning of practice 
of these other forms of identity. And the identity consists simply in the inseparability, even when I divide, even when I define, even when I separate, of all these infinite forms necessary for bodhisattva practice, the infinite forms of sentient beings, the infinite forms of delusion. Um, in rejecting them, I'm experiencing them. And my experience is now reconfigured uh, according to the Buddha's view of all of us sentient beings. That may sound a little complicated. I'm happy to talk about that more in Q&A, but because of time, I want to get to the dung beetle. So one thing this enables is uh, this specific claim. This is by um, a a favorite writer of mine, Suming Trili, sung about the uh, the 10th century um, CE, um, who writing about the six identities said, look, if you want to understand the six identities of our school, which is already several centuries old at this time, you've got to understand that they apply not only to your identity with the Buddha, but to your identity with the dung beetle. Any creature in hell, any creature in any other state, all the way down to both the name and the external appearance of a dung beetle. You must, as you progress through those six stages, gradualist stages, you not only become more identical, more explicitly identical to the Buddha, you become more explicitly identical to the dung beetle and every other form. You, to become more Buddha, you have to become more dung beetle, which is to say, now that we have this alternate idea of what a Buddha is, a Buddha is someone who sees a dung beetle as engaged in a particular form of bodhisattva practice, which is not separable from his own as a Buddha, really, right? But if you were to eliminate even the name dung beetle or the form or the activity of a dung beetle, that Buddha would not be complete. That Buddhahood would not be complete because Buddhahood, again, is threaded essentially through the notion of the infinity of of sentient beings and bodhisattva interactions with them. So um, it's very interesting. It became a very controversial doctrine, the the identity with... um, uh, the dung beetle, because that seems to be a downward trajectory, right? But surely this figure would claim, no, as any one of what they call the 10 realms becomes more manifest in the six identities, all the 3,000, the 10 realms from hell up to Buddhahood have to also become increasingly manifest in, a, in effect saying that a, even the dung beetle is not identical to the dung beetle until he reaches Buddhahood. Now, that's the, that's the final twist I want to put this, and that applies to you and me too, which is to say, again, that sameness and difference that we have, the way to become a Buddha is to become more of what you are than what you are now, which ends up on the Tiantai reading to mean becoming more all these other things, like dung beetles and Buddhas, then you realize you are now. The realization process, in other words, presupposes that our ordinary experience of who or what we are, who are and what we are doing, is always um, further explorable. And I think this is an idea you get very strongly, let's say, in Dogen, who's a very interesting figure because influenced strongly both by Tendai and by Chan and has his own uh, original take, I'd say, on both or synthesis. So 
um, the infinite explorability of this moment. As I become more what I am, you might even say when I do just sitting, when I am exploring what it is to be right here and right now, um, I'm going to discover that just to be this is to be other, is to be infinitely other, is to have these infinite depths, which include both these other times, this time and these other times, this, the, uh, the 16 darn Buddha, let's say, and the bottom of the ocean and the creepy crawlies down there. Not same, not different, right? That's the Tiantai piece here um, of these particular things. Um, but what that really means too is um, to become more identical to a Buddha is to become more identical to myself, and to to study the way you know, study the Buddha Dharma is to study oneself. To study the, the oneself is to forget oneself. Mm-mm-mm, that lovely verse from Genjo Koan you can think of here. Um, but also to become more of a dung beetle, which is what I've always been, just as I've always been a Buddha without realizing it. And as long as I exclude that, as long as I have any attachment to excluding it, as long as I have any preference between the two, or importantly, if I have any preference to what is neither Buddha nor dung beetle, you see, that's what happens in model A, we, the model one that we talked about before. We sort of say real Buddhahood is neither good nor evil, neither Buddhahood nor sentient being, neither enlightened nor deluded. And that's taken to mean those things are, are uh, superficial or superfluous to be sort of um, ignored or not attached to importantly, right? You can work that in various ways. But here, uh, the point is you have to fully realize every single aspect uh, unbiasedly as bodhisattva transformations of what you have always already been engaging in in your own being as a bodhisattva. So realizing your intrinsic Buddhahood means... um, increased awareness of that very view of the Buddha as himself, a dung beetle and you <laughs> put it like that. Um, how am I doing on time? Do I need, it's about, is that about where we need to end? Um, you could go a little bit further, but you know, we could also have discussion whenever. Yeah. Well, that's fine. I'll I'll stop there. We and we can uh, we can probe that however you guys want to uh, from there. Thank you. So, thank you very much, Brooke. Uh, very uh, lovely, illuminating talk. Uh, I'm sure there are questions, comments, um, reflections. So, um, uh, Fushin, maybe you can help me call on people. You can raise your hand, or if you're not visible on screen. Please go to the participant uh, window and uh, and you can uh, hit raise hand there. And Alex Bernstein already has his hand up, so I'll let you start, Alex. First of all, thank you. That was a that was just a really wonderful talk. Um, uh, I was just curious how um, something that you did not mention explicitly, but how the concept of uh, Tathagata Garbha or, or Buddha nature fits or doesn't uh, fit with this Tintai idea of sort of uh, essential bodhisattvas? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, I think I, in a previous talk here, I've, I've 
talked a little about this. Um, you're absolutely right. It's it's key. And basically, you will find uh, both of those terms, Buddha nature and Tathagata Garbha, um, used precisely for this. Right. This is this. Is, those are the preferred two terms in East Asia for um, uh, this original enlightenment dimension. Okay. Um, they have a little bit of a different trajectory. Um, the Tathagata Garbha idea, uh, you know, uh, uh, occurs first in a couple of, I think in India, quite marginal texts, sutras. Um, and it's usually depicted on a model of sort of something hidden, which is then discovered. You know, you'll get, you'll get images of either um, a, a Buddha sort of seated in the heart of, uh, of the sentient being, or images like, I think there's 10 similes in the Tathagata Garbha Sutra. You know, a woman has a, a treasure buried in her backyard. She doesn't know about it. Someone tells her about it. She goes, digs it up, right? That's, that's Tathagata Garbha, which means both womb and embryo of a Buddha. And actually, it, it brings up another thing which I didn't talk about but should have, which is another way this is dealt with sometimes, um, particularly in modern times, is to talk about Buddha nature as sort of a potential, right? All sentient beings have the potential to become Buddhas, right? And that is intrinsic. That's another way of dealing with this fundamental uh, kind of brain teaser of this problem, right? And they say they bring in these categories, potential and actual. I'm very wary of that. Um, I don't really think that's a, that's a good way to understand Buddha nature. Um, And, in fact, the categories of potential and actual are, have their own cultural baggage that uh, don't necessarily pertain um, here. They, they're convenient, but they can also be misleading. So if you actually look at the way the, the original discussions of that, it's very rarely, I, 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 would, I would almost uh, say you really don't have it in that form. Many people read the Lotus Sutra that way these days, actually, and I, I, I'd be cautious of that. Um, but rather, you, know, you see that there's a difference between saying something X is potentially Y and saying X is always Y, but undiscoveredly, like fully developed Y, right? So, it, it, and, and it's a, that, that potential idea has come to be a way to sort of uh, reintegrate the gradualist picture, right? Um, but I don't think it's really um, what was going on in, in classical texts on this topic. It's complicated a little bit by the Nirvana Sutra, which I already mentioned, uh, which is extremely uh, complex and, and has a, starts to bring in some of these time issues that you get so forefronted in Dogen. Um, a, the future state of Buddhahood, it's very careful to avoid either the straight potential sense or the thing hidden underneath. And in fact, that's the only text that brings in, that introduces the term Buddha nature, um, the Nirvana Sutra, and there uh, specifically the Buddha nature is, is defined in two ways, really intriguingly. First, um, it's the, uh, the direct antithesis to the traditional Buddhist ideas of impermanence, um, um, uh, suffering, you know, non-self. So, so, you know, outright said it is permanent uh, self <laughs> uh, blissful, right, and pure, even, right. This is shocking, shocking news, and the sutra has interesting ways of dealing with it. But one of them, to keep it short, is to uh, reinvoke the notion of the middle way. And in fact, that text will say Buddha nature is the middle way. 
it's a synonym for middle way. In this case, middle way between what? Between self and non-self, between permanent and impermanent, between uh, bliss and suffering, and so on. And so the discussion we just had, you might be able to spy out how that way of thinking about Buddha nature integrates rather nicely to this universal bodhisattvahood idea. Suffering and yet liberative joy, right? Permanent yet impermanent. Self yet non-self. Multiplication of selves, right? Multiplication of, of uh, sentient being sufferings um, uh, in, you know, with all these, these complications. So it's very much related to that. It's the same terminology is exactly the problem I'm talking about. But again, you get several different versions. You know, you get just an underlying thing to be discovered. You get a future state, which because of the nature of time and causality is, is uh, effectively present in its, in its antecedents or can be discovered to be so. We could talk about that at great length. And then we have this middle way. Uh, between the two extremes of permanent and impermanent. And that idea actually works quite well with model one too, right? I mean, again, you remember the mirror idea or the space idea, you can sort of understand how those are both permanent and impermanent or both self and not self. How is it self? Because it's unchanging and it's, it's indestructible. How is it not self? It has no qualities, it has no attributes, right? It's not point outable. It has no identity, right? The mirror has no color, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, all those, all those ideas are definitely uh, tangled close. The only one I would shy from is that a straight, potential, actual kind of story. Thank you. Um, we have a number of hands. Uh, Eve, I think you were first. Yeah, thank you very much for that talk. And I think it was much needed this week. Um, but what do do you know the poem "The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner"? Yeah, because that's what popped into my head when you were talking. Um, the the verse when the um, the ancient mariner kills the albatross, and then um, it, it's hung around his neck, and then it and then he sees the water snakes in the water, and it says. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. Mm. And then it says that the albatross fell off, Mm. and then the wind came. And then he says later that he's compelled to tell the story. So I I just want to know, I think that play of awareness and unawareness um, and self and other um, and identification with other beings that – that it 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 seemed very congruent to me with what you were saying. Yeah, uh, that's beautiful. I, I didn't know or at least remember that specific part of that. I remember the albatross bit a bit, but uh, that's great. Yeah, I totally see. I I I, uh, I would see a resonance there too. That's a that that way of looping, unaware, pre-reflective sort of love. Mm-hmm. even for these kind of burdensome or repulsive fellow beings, right? Um, it's quite quite uh, pertinent to this. Yeah, and then later in the poem, there's these passages about the hermit 
And then it says, the spirit who bideth by himself in the land of mist and snow. He loved the bird that loved the man who shot him with his bow. Thank you. That's really, that's really nice. I will, I'll look at that again. I haven't probably looked at that poem in 30 years. Thank you very much. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Um, Dylan Toropoff. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, there's, there's, if you know, Brooke, of any uh, of uh, uh, wrestling with through the history of, uh, of, I I don't know if it's, I'd call it semantics, I guess, about um, uh, awareness of, you know, infinitude of beings or, you know, mutual connectedness with infinitude of beings conceptually versus practical awareness or understanding of it. Like there are, there are species or beings that I've never heard of, but I'm connected to them. Like has, has there been any, does a Buddha, you know, have knowledge of those beings that we haven't discovered yet or something? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The black swan type of question, right? Um, Well, two things about that. Um, I, I take it if we just take a very literalist read of early Buddhist sources, um, you know, I, I already alluded to the the story of the Buddha's awakening, right, in the Pali Canon. And there, I think it's probably meant, you know, pretty straightforwardly and literally, right, which is to say what the Buddha awakened to was not just the truths of the Four Noble Truths, but this huge karmic panorama his own past lives and the past lives of, uh, of all sentient beings, including you and me, right? We were looked at that day by the Buddha is the claim. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, I, you know, taking that literally, it would seem to imply, yeah, sure. Plenty of beings you and me don't even know about in, Gal- you know, the Buddhist universe is very big and there's a, uh, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in, in places we've never heard of, right. That, that is, you know, part of the fun of the Mahayana Sutras, right? There are, there are, there are whole world systems where, you know, the Buddhists teach only with fragrances, not with words, for example, right? All that kind of thing, right? Or by snapping their fingers or by rolling on the ground or sticking their tongues out. So, um, you know, there's, there's bound to be <laughs> a lot of types of sentient beings that uh, a bodhi, even a, even a high-ranking bodhisattva would already like, yeah, have endeavored to come to know. I note also that in the Pure Lands, you know, in Pure Land Sutras, that's one of the first things the vows want to guarantee is that one can see all sentient beings, right? Like in, in uh, and all one's past lives, um, you know, have that sense of these various things. So purely on a textual metaphysical, you know, uh, uh, mythological level, I think that is implied. Uh, whether, you know, we would need to retain that in this discussion maybe would be another matter, right? As, as uh, thinkers through of these ideas, um, but I would also say one interesting side note to that, right? I mean, that's one way to conceive those six identities, that kind of gradualism, which is to say, well, I can say I'm connected to all beings, right? And on the one hand, I have some, well, yeah, I have some kind of dim, vague, theoretical uh, understanding of what connection means, right? And one of the things that's going to get deeper as I move through there is to understand that connection much more deeply, much more 
complexly and also maybe more dialectically involving my negation of them and, and, uh, um, and even my identity with them to that point. But another thing that's being developed as I move through there is this part, which is the power of my imagination is improving, right? I have to be able to now really, you know, empathetically, but also quite specifically picture and envision the, not only the appearances, but the, the experiences of other sentient beings, you know, imagination, development, imagination being a big part of the development of compassion. Mm. So, so, you know, one of the things I, I've found interesting in the Tiantai meditation practices is, um, uh, this is a little technical again, but, you know, they have this focus on the 3000 and that means the 10 realms from the purgatories or hells up through animals and hungry ghosts and uh, Ashuras, which are these kind of Titan fighting gods and then human beings and then gods and then, you know, uh, Shravakas and Bodhisattvas and Buddhas. But in the meditation manual uh, that you get that number 3000 by then going through literally in almost visualization of each of those realms and then the outward appearance, the inward tendencies, the the powers, the activities, the causal conditions, you know, the, the responses, the environments of specific to each of them, and then their interrelatedness. And then there's this step backwards where you see the relation of that whole thing you just imagined and the sort of productive imagination of the mind uh, as intrinsic to this moment of, ex- of deluded experience. So there is, there is almost a kind of weightlifting, you know, there's a kind of exercise of the imaginative faculty that's part of that, that practice. Thank you. Shokai uh, had his hand up. Good morning, Brooke. I wanted to ask if you could give an example about when you had to forget your uh, bodhisattvahood. And then I also wanted to ask, uh, who's your teacher and, and where, the, where you've studied? Okay. Uh, well, the first one's really an interesting case, right? Um, and this is, this is the heart of, of Tiantai theory in a way. Um, the, the first easiest way into that might be, well, there's a huge, and this may be a specific kind of East Asian or Chinese uh, um, preoccupation. We do find, and we find this very strongly in Zen as well, this idea of self-consciousness or deliberate activity as something that hinders the effectiveness of activity. In Taoism, you have this idea, right, under the term uwe or non-action or, non, or effortless action. And it's read, one of the things in Zen, you know, when the Diamond Sutra becomes so important in Zen, one of the, one of the reasons I would say, or one of the takeaways for its formula, these, these, you know, bodhisattvas are not bodhisattvas, therefore they are bodhisattvas, things like that, or sentient beings are not sentient beings, therefore are sentient beings, has to do with this level of self-consciousness. So that, that idea has long roots, pre-Buddhist roots in East Asia, which is to say, you know, uh, specifically acting with a goal in mind, like I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to practice compassion, makes that a different project than practicing compassion, right? Because your focus is now on living up to this standard that you have imported and obviously in Buddhist context connected with your self-image and blah, 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 and other types of attachments, as opposed to sort of an unmediated response to uh, uh, 
or experience of uh, the suffering of another creature. So you will get a lot, a lot, a lot of this kind of rhetoric, right, which will points to, I think, some a relatively accessible psychological uh, fact, right, which is to say um, the more you have made it an ideal to do something, uh, the less authentic in some way the execution of that ideal is. It's a, it, it starts in Taoism as a kind of uh, um, a prioritization of spontaneity and naturalness as what really makes those values valuable and so that they get, there's almost, there's a kind of turnaround there. Why, you know, I mean, the whole, the whole Tao Te Ching is on this topic basically, right? The, the more you posit uh, benevolence and righteousness, the more phony they become. <laughs> but, um, so the more you praise those moral values, the more you preach morality, the more you make it a commodity that people will fight for and, you know, compete over and so on. Right. It's self undermining. So that, that of course there's, that's a problem and there's different ways to approach it. Buddhism approaches it differently in terms of the solution uh, than Taoism does. That's part of it. I always use for Tiantai uh, this setup punchline model to talk about this too, you know, where, um, you know, when you have a, a joke, like a stupid pun joke, I, I, I'll use my standard one, which is like, you know, my dog has no nose. Oh, really? How does he smell? Terrible. That joke. Okay. Now, that joke has a structure, right? It has a setup and a punchline. And for the joke to work, I have to not know in advance. There's an element of surprise or turnaround or contrast between the two senses of the word smell, right? When I went through the first time I took you to me and how does he uh, absorb, you know, fragrances, right? Rather than how does he emit fragrances uh, or, you know, um, and um, the joke won't work if you've heard it before, Right. So th- that actually illustrates more than anything the way Tiantai thinks about this delusion-enlightenment relationship, where they will say, you know, in a way you could say the setup to that joke is funny. Just like you can say sentient beings' experience is enlightened, right? But to be experienced as funny, you have to first not feel that it's funny. In other words, you have to have the contrast between the funny punchline and the non-funny setup for either one to be funny, but then as soon as either one is funny, both are funny, right? Because you don't just have a funny punchline, right? You wouldn't say the punchline is funny, but the joke isn't. It's funny in a deadpan way, and we are enlightened in a deadpan way, you know? We are enlightened by not being enlightened, and similarly with compassion in some cases. So the other, the other instance of that, and this also pertains, so, you know, the contrast has to be there. Right. Um, for the awakening to be meaningful. So another way, another in, sort of more intersubjective one, I think, uh, implied here. Right. So, um, you know, in a Buddhist context, go back to the, the, the letter of the Lotus Sutra. Their idea there is, look, there are some sentient beings who are not ready for bodhisattvahood now, you know. And they, for them, if you start preaching just bodhisattvahood, they're going to be totally freaked out and it's too much and, it, and they, they don't even want to bother with it. They just want a quick end of suffering. So, okay, you got to preach the end of suffering. But there's a further implication in this idea that you are querying, which is that, you know, if you're just pretending to preach it, but secretly you know all along, you're not really one of them. 
right? That there's some little reservation of maybe condescension or contempt or, you know, paternalism to it. Uh, you can't really preach it sincerely and effectively. So even if the non-knowing is really intermittent, I mean, I actually think psychologically we're not really talking about, well, I didn't know for 10 years that I was really a bodhisattva, but it could be when I get into talking about how great Hinayana or Theravada Buddhism is, I forget all about its insufficiencies, right? And that is what makes it effective, right? My ability to forget, to really be absorbed for those people who need it, who are right now need it, I'm one of them when I speak of it, you know what I mean? So when a bodhisattva uh, or not, and so we extend that in Tiantai, not just to, to Theravada Buddhism, Hinayana Buddhism, so-called, but to anything, you know, whatever the thing you are, um, uh, to be sincerely involved as a bodhisattva, you may have to temporarily uh, be willing to forget the bodhisattva part of it. You know, that's a part of effective communication, and that's what a bodhisattva is all about. So that's my thoughts on that. I don't know if that helps. I mean, so this practice, you just, and you achieve that through practice. Yeah, well, I mean, right, right, right. So, so, yeah. How do you, the state of not self-consciousness, you know? Yeah. Well, that's why I say, like, I think actually if you, if you connect that to the other things we were talking about, you know, where, okay, so in Tantai they'll say a Buddha, a Buddha or a Bodhisattva responds to sentient beings by shape-shifting, right, and preaching the appropriate doctrine. They say, look, um, non-Buddhist teachers can do that either with miracles or, and this is from Jiri, the founder of Tantai, said, or deliberately with intention. And that's not, that's not going to be sort of up to the level of effectiveness and universality that we need here. So that's why in Tiantai they will insist, by the, you know, Buddha nature not only includes all these sentient beings like a dung beetle, um, and not only do they um, claim that even insentient beings have Buddha nature, but also it, it, even a Buddha does not eliminate the inherent evil, they will say, of the Buddha nature. And one of the main reasons for that is this, which is to say it's part of his own nature that's being activated. When he's, you know, if you read like the Vimalakirti Sutra, Vimalakirti goes, hangs out at bars and brothels and city council meetings, right? But for all we know, he sort of has it in the back of his mind. He says, okay, I got to go pretend to be drunk with these people, but I'm going to remain pure. The claim is in Tiantai that, well, in his own nature, there's God, even of a Buddha, there has to always be that thing which is making the drunkard a drunkard. You know, that lust for inebriation or, or pleasure or whatever it is, right? And so when he responds to them directly, he's not, it's, he's not faking it and he's not making even an effort. It's like, that's where they use the mirror metaphor in Tentai. They'll say, that's just this thing that's intrinsic in him being brought out. But because of the cultivation, as you say, of a Buddha, who's not fixated in just being a drunkard. That's the difference, right? That's why I say 
being able to shift among an infinity of forms, even to forget and remember in and out, right? That's intenti, the interpervasion or intersubsumption of all these 3,000 forms is the difference. So when he can dive into that, it's sincere, you know? He feels it, and he feels that suffering of that addiction, you might say. He can't, that's their view. I mean, this is an interesting ethical question, I suppose, but that's the tenti view of the, how the ethics of this work. That thing that makes the addict an addict, you know, it's, it sort of is like alcoholics talking at Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe, right? They'll say, I am an alcoholic, right? And I will counsel you because I know from the inside what that is. And it's not just in my past that I know. I know it because that's what I am in my core, right? But I now have other things, too, that allow it not to manifest in just that attached and, you know, destructive way. But that's what that is the bridge that allows us to, um, yeah, to connect and and for the work to proceed. And who, who's your? Where have you studied? Oh, my teacher. Oh, uh, I've st- many teachers. <laughs> um, I, uh, you mean of of Tiantai in particular? Yeah, uh, anything. Well, I mean, I. I I was, you know, I, I studied Chinese Buddhism uh, and Chinese thought of first um, when I was living in Taiwan, I, I was, uh, had, had um, a, a couple of private teachers who I read texts with there. Uh, after college, I was there for three years. So uh, sutra reading, also classical Chinese sources a lot there. I mean, I, I, you might not know the names. And then I was in graduate school and then I was back in Taiwan and um, I've had a, a lot of teachers like that. Thank, thank you, Brooke. Uh, we have a question from Juan Pablo, Juan Pablo who's in Argentina and with a, a unclear, uncertain connection. Juan Pablo, do you want to try and ask it? Or uh, I think he wrote it to Fushin. Uh, Juan Pablo, do you want to try and speak or... Truffle will be able to hear you. Fushin, if you have his question, maybe you can ask. The first question is, if everything is doing Buddha work... Hi, um, can you hear me? Yes, we actually we can. Go ahead, Juan Pablo. Okay, um, I have some delay here. Um, we're, I'm having a bad connection today, but uh, so can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. Okay, perfect. Uh, I was thinking the first question. First question is concerned with theodicy. Oh, so, yeah. and and I was, I was thinking if everything is doing Buddha work, uh, that carries us to something like a theodicy or whatever, but you, you think about a little bit about uh, evil. So I, I want, if you, I, I want to know if you, if you can yeah. extend a little bit about that. Yes. And the second, and the second question has to do with becoming Buddha. And, and you mentioned uh, for me, it's similar to, or can we understand becoming Buddha as the, incorporation of 
the point of view of all entities in the world, something like that, because mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, that's mm -hmm. to, and, and what happens with alterity in ah, when we can do the yeah, yeah. kind of frame. Yeah, yeah. yeah great. Um, those are great questions. Uh, first question, theodicy. So, you know, for those, most of you know that term, that's a term used in, in monotheist traditions, you know, to talk about how to deal with the fact that God is omnipotent and omnibenevolent and yet evil exists, right? How to justify the ways of God to man. And I would say that, you know, part of the reason Buddhism from the beginning really avoided any, any kind of origin story like that was precisely uh, to avoid that. Um, implication, right? And that's another, that's, you rightly point out, that's a place where Buddha nature doctrine seems to um, uh, undo the, the, the protective measure, you might say, of early Buddhism, right? It's very, in uh, early Buddhist critiques of the notion of a creator god, this is a very prominent argument, in fact. Um, but a couple points about that. One thing is, um, first of all, in model one, not the Tiantai model, but the sort of proto-Chan model, um, there is a difference between saying Buddha nature um, and saying, uh, or even the Buddha mind as an original unconditioned thing and something like the benevolent mind of God. And this goes back to, and it again goes back to uh, Jokai's question, I think, about intention. Because after all, the whole point of the Buddha mind, the unattached uh, awareness is it has no intentions. It is not partial to one intention over another, neither good nor evil. A good becomes uh, an evil when attached to, uh, just as an evil was an evil because attached to. So the specific contents um, of these various things um, are not um, marked as, as one or another, right? It, has no, it doesn't create the world um, as, a, as a project um, rooted in you know, I would say the traditions for which the Odyssey is an issue are rooted in the Platonic idea of nous, really Anaxagoran idea of nous as arche, intelligence as arche. Intelligence is different from awareness, is mm. the point. So um, intelligence is understood by Plato. You can look in the Phaedo on this. Socrates is talking about Anaxagoras, and he says, well, if, all, if intelligence is the source of all things, that means everything should be disposed to the good. You know, that's what intelligent does. It chooses the best among alternatives, or it, it prefers one thing to another. And, it, and in the Platonic notion, which becomes uh, something that informs a lot of the monotheist um, stories, um, that means the good pre-exists, and we, we desire things because they are good, maybe in a distorted form, but ultimately because they are themselves good. So you really have ultimate goodness at the source of things. But good very explicitly to the exclusion of evil, even when you have a kind of uh, Plotinian, you know, privation theory, which says, no, all that exists is good. They tweak the, the concept of existence there because noose intelligence is the, is the primary term. And that implies choice. But in the Buddhist context, anything like that is, is thoughts, right? Is desires, and there is no good outside of what is desired, right? The good is something posited by the act of desiring, which itself is rooted in delusion. So the, the dualism between good and evil there is pushed to a different level ontologically. And that makes for an interesting thing. You'll find uh, advocates of that first model, Zongmi in China is a good example, who they don't, of course, they also have your, uh, you, you know, they always have the parable of the arrow type of 
outlet here where they will say, we teach just suffering and the end of suffering. We don't address these kind of uh, first cause is or isn't end of the world, beginning of the world, right? These are beyond knowledge or comprehensions. We're not claiming anything like that, right? But they do tip close to that. You're not wrong, right? When they make this original enlightenment claim. There are, there are dodges, you, I'd say. But, but people who take that kind of pure awareness view will say, pure awareness is emptiness, which means it is just like the mirror doesn't hold on to any one color and has no color, has no intrinsic qualities. The intrinsic self-nature does not hold on to its own nature. That is its nature. That's its paradoxical nature. And that means it is just an allowing of the arising of any and every color, shape, form, entity, not causing them, but the allowing of them, the non-preventing of them. That's, that's, that's sort of the key shift, right? And that means, among other things, of attachment. So it's sort of, it's almost not only inevitable, but even proof of the non-exclusivity, which is necessary for enlightenment, of the universal awareness that among the infinity of things that must be constantly arising, because if they didn't, it would be fixed, right? If it ever stopped having things arise, it would then suddenly have a self-nature, which it's claimed it doesn't have. It's free of any contents, right? But free of any contents doesn't mean a blank. It means there can't be any fixed set of contents. So there's going to arise attachment. There's going to arise sentient beings. There's going to arise evil. But they're at the one, on the one hand, they are an expression of, the non-attachment, which is the enlightened nature, right? And, um, and do not, not, not merely the expression because they actually instantiate it. They're coextensive with it wherever they occur. So you almost have this picture of these things clustering up. That's on model one. On the Tentai model, they will say, there's a, don't take, they say this very explicitly, more traditionally Buddhist in a way. They'll say, Original enlightenment does not mean there was first some state that was pure that then became impure. Mm-mm. That, and this, again, I would say closer to the Dogen type view, right? There's always been all this stuff, both. Delusion, it, it, in real time terms, it's the old Buddhist story, basically. As far back as we can see beginningless time, delusion, sentient beings, intentions, desires, suffering, that's it. When we say that's original enlightenment, we're not pointing to something other than that. We're saying something about that. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it's in response to that that bodhisattva activity is activated, and that's where we get our setup punchline thing. You've got trillions of years of just setup, you might say, right? And that's just suffering until your punchline is, oh, no, that was deadpan. Funny, right? And that's just done by a bodhisattva. Uh, any explicit bodhisattva, seeing the bodhisattvahood implicit in these other uh, acts. So you can see how this segues quite directly into the Dogen time being type of consideration, Mm -hmm. right? This retroactive sort of reintegrations and things like that. What was your second question? I've now forgotten because I was so long-winded. Or somebody remind me. What was the second question? Uh, Um, Oh, oh, exteriority, right? About alterity. Alterity, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, so right. It, it, in terms of sort of maybe you're thinking Levinas or you're thinking, um, you know, uh, these sort of totalizing uh, doctrines. I think this is a really interesting one, actually, because um, while someone like maybe uh, 
you can sort of see why, you know, there would be a comparison to maybe a Hegel or somebody who would claim, yeah, I think you said the, the, the experience of all beings, right? But there are a, a, a few refinements, and it has to do with that first point about the three truths. So officially, let's say, the Tiantai view is um, there, is no say, there is no identity without difference, and there is no difference without identity. That slogan you could hear in Hegelian circles, too. Um, but what they mean by that is really quite straightforward. I mean, and it has to do with what I was saying about the dung beetle at the end, right? Which is to say, um, straight up emptiness theory, the, the, the basic ontological assumption here, I would say, is meant to circumvent that dichotomy between assimilated and assimilated, So that the more yourself you become, the more alien to yourself you become, right? The more the exteriority that you've incorporated um, reveals the inextricable inner division even in what you considered your pure sameness self. So the division is not... the It is intrinsic to beings that they are essentially related to what is other than them, right? That's basic Buddhism. Right, that's dependent co-arising. That's conditionality, but that means if it's if having an outside is the necessary condition or even the essence of what it is to be an inside, um, the Tantai view is the more you develop the inside, the more the inside becomes outside. Just as, in other words, the more you incorporate, the more you you uh, externalize, the more alien to yourself you become. And the, the guarantor of that not becoming an, assimilat- an assimilative project is the reversibility. In other words, I'm subject, you're predicate, I'm subsumer, you're subsumed. But when that succeeds, my subsuming of you puts you in the position that subsumes me. This goes back to Zhuang's and the butterfly, actually, I think. you know, the, uh, So in other words, we say a Buddha is also a dung beetle. But in the end, I really, we can say a dung beetle is really a Buddha. You know, in other words, the dung beetle subsumes the Buddha as much as the Buddha subsumes the dung beetle. That's the idea. That's why they are, want to insist on all of the, to develop one, the selfness of one is actually to develop the otherness of that self inextricably. So it involves recognizing how alien to yourself you are, right? And that is revealed by the process of these interactions with other beings and attempts to, uh, you know, empathize with them. I would say this too. Um, the worry there is often, oh, well, you're projecting your own ideas of what other entities feel, right? This is Zhuangzi and the fish, <laughs> happiness of fish story in a way. But uh, I, I think the Tiantai claim, maybe the broader Buddhist claim, is you're projecting it even on yourself. That, that's what's key to this idea that, you know, you might be a bodhisattva without knowing it. You think you're not. You hate bodhisattvas. That may be your way of being a bodhisattva. So you don't have any transparent self-consciousness of the character of the thing you are assimilating to, put it that way. It's self-undermining. Thank you very much. Good, good questions. Interesting discussion. Um, we might have time for one more comment or response or question, if there is. Um, 
if not, um, we can go on to uh, our chanting and announcements. Uh, thank you very much, Brooke, for a wonderful talk. Oh, there is. Uh, yes, Jason. I do have one, hopefully, brief question. But when you were laying out the – and the talk was super fascinating. Thanks, everyone, for the discussion. This has been a, a wonderful morning so far. Um, when you were talking about the six progressions, you uh, brought up the, the um, simulacrum identity and the partial identity. Yeah. Those two feel very interconnected, and I can't quite find where the division yeah. line is. Could you maybe yeah. parse that out just a little bit? Yeah, no, you're not wrong. There's the, the, and they're a little bit ad hoc, I would say. You know, why is it? Why does it have to be six? You could kind of just just have. It feels to me. I've always felt this way that. In theory, it could be, you know, in, in principle, in name, in practice, and then realization. Like, those are the two extra ones that, like, and I really think they're an ad, ad hoc thing that, that Jerry puts in there to, to give a little more granular detail to match up to the traditional stages of the Bodhisattva path. You know, there's traditionally 52, and they're, you know, they each have a name, and they have a little description, a little deepening of compassion and powers, and... uh and so I can't remember offhand which way it works. I think he puts the first 10, the 10 uh, confidences or something in that simulacrum category. So those are faiths, actually. So maybe that's why he calls it that, right? Those are, those are still somehow in the mode of externality, you know. In other words, one has now, you know, conviction that these things are so of bodhisattvas, but you know, maybe are deliberately engaged in them or something, but it's still not the real deal until you pass into the next 42. And those are, you know, you can look those up for the, for the, the points of why it's partial, right? Cause they're extremely gradualist. It's just sort of one step after another. So I, I, my guess is that's, that's what that's about. And the content is really provided by that sort of preexisting scriptural material. And I'll add that that those fifty-two are, uh, appear maybe elsewhere, but also in the flower ornament of a Tamsaka right. Sutra, which we have a monthly chanting of. So uh, watch out for that the first Friday of the month. And thank you very much, Brooke, um, and everyone for the discussion. We'll now do our chant.